I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Uh, Marina Warner and Chloe Aregis. Uh, thank you both very much for being here as well. Um, chairing the event this evening, we also have Joanna Biggs and Alice Spools, both editors at the London Review of Books, and crucially this evening, co-founders of Silver Press. Um, with Sarah. And Sarah, sorry. Where's Sarah? Hi, Sarah. Sorry, Sarah. <laughs> um, tonight, as usual, there'll be discussion, followed by time for your questions. Uh, that's it. Please join me in a very warm welcome to our panel. Thank you. So we're here, the reason why the book's been published is because it's the centenary of, um, of Leonor Carrington. Her birthday's on Thursday, so you should celebrate then. <laughs> um, and um, along with our book is the first collected, complete edition of her stories. And there was split across two editions in Virago. There are things here that's never been, three stories that never been published before. And we can finally see her work in full, really, by doing this. Um, and so I wanted to ask Marina Warner, who's written off uh, afterward, to read a story. A Man in Love. Walking down a narrow street one evening, I stole a melon. The fruit seller, who was lurking behind his fruit, caught me by the arm. Miss, I've been waiting for a chance like this for 40 years. For 40 years, I've hidden behind this pile of oranges in the hope that somebody might pinch some fruit. And the reason for that is, I want to talk. I want to tell my story. If you don't listen, I'll hand you over to the police. I am listening, I told him. He took me by the arm and dragged me to the depths of his shop among the fruit and vegetables. We went through a door at the back and reached a room where there was a bed in which lay a woman, motionless and probably dead. It seemed to me that she must have been there a long time, for the bed was overgrown with grass. I water her every day, the greengrocer said thoughtfully. For 40 years, I've been quite unable to tell whether she is alive or dead. She hasn't moved or spoken or eaten during that time. But, and this is the strange thing, she remains warm. If you don't believe me, look. Whereupon he lifted a corner of the bed cover and I saw a large number of eggs and some newly hatched chicks. You see, he said, that's where I hatch my eggs. I sell fresh eggs, too. We sat down on opposite sides of the bed, and the greengrocer began to tell his tale. I love her so much, believe me. 
I've always loved her. She was so sweet. She had nimble little white feet. Would you like to see them? No, I replied. Anyway, he continued with a deep sigh. She was so beautiful. I had fair hair, but she, she had magnificent black hair. We both of us have white hair now. Her father was an extraordinary man. He had a big house in the country. He was a collector of lamb cutlets. The way we met was this. I have this special little gift. I can dehydrate meat by just looking at it. <laughs> Mr. Pushfoot, that was his name, heard about me. He asked me to come to his house to dehydrate his cutlets so that they shouldn't rot. Agnes was his daughter. We immediately fell in love. We went away together in a boat on the Seine. I was rowing. Agnes said, I love you so much, I live only for you. And I used the same words to reply to her. I believe it's my love that keeps her so warm to this day. No doubt she is dead, but the warmth remains. Next year, he went on with a faraway look in his eyes, next year I shall plant some tomatoes. I'd be surprised if they didn't do very well in there. Night fell. I didn't know where we could pass our wedding night. Agnes had become so pale, so pale from exhaustion. At last, just as we left Paris behind, I saw a cafe beside the river. I moored the boat, and we walked up to the dark and sinister terrace. There were two wolves and a fox prowling around us. Nobody else. I knocked. I knocked on the door, but it remained closed on a terrible silence. Agnes is tired. Agnes is very tired. I shouted with all my might. Finally, an old crone hung out of the window and said, I don't know a thing. It's the fox who's the landlord here. Let me sleep. You're getting on my nerves. Agnes began to cry. There was nothing I could do but speak to the fox. Have you any beds? I asked him several times. He didn't reply. He couldn't speak. Then the crone's head, now even older than before, came down slowly from the window at the end of a piece of string. Speak to the wolves. I am not in charge here. Please let me sleep. I understood that the crone was mad, that there was no sense in going on. Agnes was still weeping. I walked around the house several times and in the end managed to open a window through which we entered. We found ourselves in a high ceilinged kitchen where there was a large stove glowing red with fire. Some vegetables were cooking themselves, jumping around in boiling water. This game delighted them. We ate well and afterwards lay down to sleep on the floor. I held Agnes in my arms. We didn't sleep a wink. There were all sorts of things in that terrible kitchen. A great number of rats sat on the threshold of their holes and sang with shrill, disagreeable little voices. Foul smells spread and dispersed one after the other, and there were strange drafts. I think it was the drafts that finished off my poor Agnes. She was never herself again. From that day on, she spoke less and less. At that, the owner of the fruit shop was so blinded by his tears that I was able to make my escape with my melon. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, yes. I think I know some reasons why you chose that story, but tell us a bit about why, what, that, what that story does, why, why it fits in your work, why it's interesting, why, why that one? 
Well, it, it, it catches that blend of comic and, and a truly dreamlike. I mean, yeah. a truly original, too. In a sense, you've never encountered these kinds of sequences of thoughts before. Sometimes she sounds quite gothic. Yeah. But, but at other times, it's a very authentic, peculiar mixture. And then she has this signature interest that everything is alive. So I think a particularly Leonora kind of sentence, which you wouldn't find in another writer, is the, the vegetables jumping up and down in the boiling water, enjoying themselves <laughs> being cooked, <laughs> on, having, having volunteered for this. And there's a kind of undermining of romanticism. You know, she's probably very, very young when she writes this, but she's already pretty canny about men who say they're desperately in love. You know, she's got a kind of real sense of the... You know, she, she cuts through a lot of mm. flummery. You know that bit where he insists that, he's, that his love is keeping this dead body warm, yeah, yeah alive in that way? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Chloe, did you... Um, I mean, did that story speak to you in certain ways? I mean, when you were reading it, I thought about the melon. The melon's suddenly alive in this way that I hadn't realised the way it can, you know... Like, but, yeah, I wonder if there's anything in that story that well again this this feeling of imprisonment and captivity and fighting yeah. against mm -hmm. and also the um, as you said the vegetables coming alive and having souls mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's the ordinariness too isn't it yeah. she, she's very she's she has some very great paintings which are of cabbages and yeah. and so she that she or of a yam so yeah. she she likes the she likes the creaturely, which I think is why it's called female human animal. Mm -hmm. But it's also because she likes the quotidian. You know, she likes the things that are around you. She makes she makes these potent concoctions out of ordinary ingredients. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's so realism, right? Yeah, they're both. Yeah. But it's not so um, exotic or mm. orientalized with some some aspects of surrealism. And as with so many of these stories, we have a narrator who is sort of such a wonderful avatar for the reader of the story, you know, someone who's held captive, having to listen to this story when they just want to make off with their melon, <laughs> yeah. and is sort of saying, you know, this is happening, I'm, I'm not doing this, you know, she has a sort of disdainful attitude to her own creativity sometimes, her fancifulness. Mm. Uh, tell us a bit about how you came to know her, Marina. It's actually a, a sort of, it's a, it's a chapter really of a, a feminist history, because <laughs> what happened was that in the 80s, I mean, there may be people in this room who remember this period, um, <laughs> and, and there was a kind of search for, you know, great figures, and certainly within the visual arts, this is the time when, pretty much around the time when Germaine Greer wrote her book, it was called Old Mistress, so she went around to numerous museums all over the world, she did this immense archival work. And in a way, it's sort of dated because, you know, we have moved on. So it's, it's interesting that there was a sort of attempt to excavate people. So I was sort of part of that. And Whitney Chadwick, who did the original sort of spade work on the forgotten female surrealists, this was very much part of the same movement. You know, who has not been acknowledged? Whose voices have been muffled? Whose work have we not seen? Yeah. And Whitney Chadwick brought out a really exceptional book, which has been reissued and updated, in fact. And she really pioneered rediscovering these muses who had been seen only as beauties and been much photographed and were very quite well known, many of them, from their photographs rather than from their actual works. People so, like Lee Miller as well. Or exactly. Lee Miller, mm -hmm. you see, was not, you can probably not hardly believe this, but in the 80s she was sort of forgotten. So, so she had to be, it was Anthony Penrose, her son, who by archiving her work extremely carefully and very well um, and actually rediscovering a lot of her work. Mm. Um, 
brought her into the sort of absolute visibility that she now rightfully mm. enjoys. Mm. So, that, so it was a sort of moment of historicizing um, the roles of women in the past. And I worked on Eleonora, and then because I was kind of working on her, people noticed it, and I was asked to look at the collected short stories in the E.P. Dutton edition mm. of the 80s. And um, they were had been translated by Catherine Talbot, who was a very well-known translator. So, um, but I worked on the translations a bit as well. And there were two volumes. And so that, then after that, I decided to obviously try and meet her. And I was actually making a film with Gina Newson. Gina Newson and I, this is another chapter of history, which is that in those days, Channel 4 had a live, very, very lively arts program. And all you needed to do was put up a good idea, and you'd be given seed money to go and find out more about the topic. It's extraordinary that that existed. And so that's what happened. We said, Leonora Carrington, very good subject. Yes, he said, here's 200 pounds. Those days, enough money to go to New York, find her, and, um, or something, and very little money. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we went to New York, and we found her, and she was living in this basement flat, mm-hmm. which, um, a basement apartment, because she had a great fear of heights, and she'd come to New York by bus. She never, <laughs> she never flew. She never flew, which is why, partly why she never, she didn't return to England because she had broken with her background completely, um, except for her mother's death. She came back for that. But she, otherwise, she never flew. So she took the coach with all the kind of illegal workers. She was very proud of that, mm. crossing the borders, you know. And, and, then, and she then holed up in New York. Mm. Uh, at that time, um, she was in flight from Chiki, her husband, whom you knew, I think. <laughs> and why was he not behaving? She was bored with him. Um, but unfortunately, because she was brought up a Catholic, mm. she, she had a kind of, you know, she, she decided that she, when he got ill, she went back and nursed him. He's she went back on the bus and nursed him. <laughs> Until he was 97. Yeah, absolutely. No, but she did have that street. I mean, she was yeah. a very, very, I mean, you know that better than I do. She was a very warm person. She wasn't at all sort of icy and hard. No. So... So had a so, sense of duty. So, but she was just exasperated yeah. with him. She just found him <laughs> totally tiresome. And, um, and, she, and she was still so you know, fertile and exuberant and yeah. imaginative and active that for her to have this sort of person who was always sort of fussing about you know, the way... You know. <laughs> <laughs> How old was she when you met when you um, Well, it was 1986, so she was... She was born in what? 1917. Chloe's written this wonderful, um, Chloe knew her mm. in Mexico. So I met her in the early 90s, so around 20, no, oh, well, 10 years, 10 years after, yeah. so a very different chapter. When she'd returned, yes. She'd returned. Yeah. She returned. Yeah. And do you want, Chloe's written this wonderful A to Z of, of memories. Of yeah, her. which I think you should read to give us a sense Absolutely. of what she was um, And so I met Leonora because there was a doctor, a wonderful, wonderful doctor in Mexico named Teodoro Cesarman, who was doctor to almost all the writers and artists and so-called intellectuals. And, um, and he wouldn't charge anyone. And in, in return, he'd get paintings or books or prints or drawings. And so he was our family doctor until he died. And then he was Leonora's doctor. And so my father had met Leonora in the 70s, but then they hadn't crossed paths again. But then one Sunday in the early 90s, we went. I'd been living abroad, but. I was visiting home, and we went to Teodoro's house for lunch. I met Leonora there, and immediately uh, a friendship was struck up, and she said, what are you doing? Uh, 
I, I, it was probably a Saturday, and she said, what are you doing tomorrow? Tea time. And then and it became a ritual every Sunday, going to house for tea after lunch. And, um, my parents would go most Sundays, and I'd go when I was visiting home. But, um, and so often, it was so memorable. Everything she said, and the, it just felt there was such a continuum between her work and her speech was, that uh, I'd go home and take notes. Yes. I, I never necessarily thought I was going to publish anything, but I just thought I, I knew that I didn't trust my memory to... So anyways, um, and then I assembled them into this A to Z that uh, I'll read now. And it's a new academic tome called Leonard Carrington. It's got loads of wonderful pictures yeah, in it. Really yeah, that's yeah. no, wonderful. And uh, editor, my, oh yeah, one of the editors is here, Katriona. <laughs> so an A to Z of Leonard Carrington memories, mostly in quotes, gathered over years of visits to her home. So, A, ambidextrous. Leonora could write with both hands at once, forwards and backwards. Yes, I'm ambidextrous, like madmen, she once said. B, bullfighting. Horrific. It's a disgusting, shameful demonstration of human stupidity and cruelty. Horrible. I was once put out at a bullfight. I got up and clapped when the bull jumped over the thing and chased all the attendants around, <laughs> and I just clapped and clapped, and they put me out. <laughs> C, Cats. The last cats Leonora owned were Ramona and Monsieur, two green-eyed Siamese who followed her around the house. She wanted a dog too, but worried the cats would stop speaking to her. D. Devils. I think, oh, this was, I think, when I asked her once whether she believed in the cult, and she said, well, it depends. And then she said, I think they're very dangerous devils, and I think they're interesting devils, and I think they're very stupid devils. I think they're probably intelligent ones, and angels and anything that has been invented. Hundreds, thousands of them, all over the place. Well, I use the word invented when I mean seen. I don't know what invented means, really. Do you? E, England. Though Nora would express nostalgia for England, but at the same time had no desire to return. She missed the trees and the architecture, she said, rather than the people, since most of those she knew had passed away, and the eventful moments of her life had taken place abroad. F, filters. Until her final days, Lenora smoked. Her choice of cigarettes varied, but she always attached them to short plastic filters, which she would clean and reuse. And often she'd, with also F, Fiskar scissors, enormous scissors, she'd cut off the tips of a cigarette, put it down, and then relight it a few puffs, and then put it down and snip the, the ends. G, gray. More than anything, Lenora wore gray. Again, this is in the years I knew her, maybe no, no, more colorful. Also, yeah, okay. <laughs> More than anything, Lenora wore gray. Baggy gray trousers, long gray sweaters, gray shawls, gray turtlenecks, gray lace-up shoes. Occasionally, she'd bring in a bit of purple, but my memory of her is distinctly in monochrome. H, haunting. This will come to again. Lenora would sometimes mention a middle-aged woman in pink who would appear in different rooms of the house. A few friends claimed to see the ghost as well, standing behind her. She was never scared, however. In previous times, her home had been a printing house, which is not a very sinister thing, she said. <laughs> I, imagination. Nothing is created by the imagination. Imagination is a very mysterious force, which we know very little about. We don't know if it creates anything. I think that things occur. Like, for instance, somebody one time must have invented a cup because it was easier than putting your face into a river and lapping up the water. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> J, Edward James. 
Englishman in Mexico, patron of the Cyrilists, Leonora was fond of him, despite saying he lacked respect for his friends and would wash his hands with his, her shampoo. <laughs> she, more than once she complained about that. <laughs> K. Kabbalah, the book Leonora would mention most frequently, important to her throughout her lifetime. L. Lapland. Often when we'd ask Leonora what place she would most like to visit, she would reply, Lapland. She loved reindeer and wished the Laps would stop eating them. <laughs> M. Manipulation. Leonora said manipulation is what makes the great cosmic yogurt. N. <laughs> Nagas. Some of Leonora's favorite mythical creatures from Indian mythology, which featured in her paintings and sculptures. There's a crocodile-like, the most famous ones in a boat. O. Orange Pico. Leonora would often ask me to bring her a tin of tea from England, especially orange pico. She, always, she also loved PG tips, bog standard English tea, she called it, and said she much preferred it to fancy teas. Whatever I brought her, she would keep under lock and key, with the key around her neck, so that no one else would use it. Cachez la boîte de PG tips, she'd say. <laughs> P. Painting. I rarely paint images from dreams. Images occur just like that. They occur from something that is further away from my consciousness, I think. But any painter would tell you that. Q. Quel désir d'extravagance. André Breton's words upon first seeing her paintings in Paris when Leonora was 20. R. Colonia Roma was the neighborhood where she lived in Mexico City from the 1940s onwards. Over the decades, it underwent an enormous transformation. Across the street lay the debris of a collapsed building, a victim of the 1985 earthquake, which housed a growing community of cats and homeless people. Lenora called it a garden of scorpions. S, spiritism. Lenora could see through the hocus pocus of people who claimed to have supernatural powers. She once played a trick on a very serious ex-Nazi with a thick German accent. Those are her words. <laughs> who held a seance. She brought along one of her sons, and before the session, they attached a small instrument to the bottom of the table. It made metallic noises whenever it was pulled by a string. Everyone sat down. After a while, Lenora began to grow bored and decided to play a trick on the ex-Nazi. She or her son pulled this string. Noises were heard coming from beneath the table. Lenora remarked, I think there's something there. So the ex-Nazi asked, who are you? And she replied, I think it is a horse, of course. <laughs> the man stood up and tipped the table over to reveal the hidden instrument. He was livid and never spoke to Leonora again. T, time. I don't need to kill time, it's killing me. She replied, mm -hmm. when, I, when I asked whether she played chess, she replied that she was uninterested in board games. She'd rather draw. U, University of Contraception. Leonora's idea. She'd often complain there were too many people in the world and wish they would establish such a university. <laughs> v. Remedios Varo. Feline-faced Spanish painter, one of Leonora's cl closest female friends with whom she shared a love of cats. W. Emerico Weiss, also known as Chiki, Hungarian photographer to whom Leonora was married for over 50 years, largely in silence. X. Xanax, Tafil in Mexico. Leonor would take half a tablet every night for sleep and anxiety. The darkness would set in by late afternoon, she said. Why? Yeti, 
Lenora's final pet, a small white hyperactive Maltese for whom she had tremendous affection. Z, Z zoology. Lenora adored animals, mythical and real. And this is a quote from her. I draw completely from my mind. Well, I don't know if it's my mind, but if I'm drawing an animal like a cat, I'd like to draw it from life. Do you want to talk us through those photos as well? Oh, okay. So, uh, well, I guess we can start with Cheeky. <laughs> this was towards the end of his life. He lived to be 97. And that's one of the cats, I don't know if it's Ramona or Monsieur. But um, for the last five or eight years of his life, he spent, he, he was mostly homebound. And he lived in his room. They had separate rooms connected by it. Well, there was a bridge and uh, an outdoor patio. But um, he'd watch television, a very snowy screen, terrible reception, but he didn't seem to mind. It was mostly nature programs that he'd watch. Um, you can, you know. And, uh, and uh, Chiki was a Hungarian Jew who said his family had been killed in the Holocaust. Lenore would call him a drama queen and, and sometimes say it wasn't true, but I think... It largely was. <laughs> he had a, when we first met them, he had a dog named Marouche, who was already quite old, and he would walk Marouche. And I never, in all the years I knew him, I never saw Cheeky without his beret. He always wore his beret. Um, and he was, well, first he was Robert Kappa's darkroom manager. He said he walked from Budapest to Paris with Robert Kappa in the 30s. And then he married Leonora. But he was, and then he spent 50 years as the photographer at the Rotary Club and ate lunch there every day. But he was very much... That's in Mexico City. In Mexico City, yeah. the Rotary Club in yeah. Mexico City. But um, he was very used to not being the protagonist and being very quiet and silent. And they only spoke French together. He never learned English. Mm. Um, and they spoke a very old-fashioned French. Um, but she still would say cachet la boîte in French. Yeah, well, you know, she slipped between languages, right, so French, okay. Spanish, English. Yeah. So she'd always say cachet la boîte, the PG tips. And then she'd also hide her whiskey. In a, she didn't <laughs> trust the people they worked. There was a woman named Yolanda who worked there. Mm. And then someone named Salvador with a ponytail who also worked for Alan Glass, a Canadian artist, a good friend of hers. Um, but she, I think it was a combination of not trusting anyone, but also there was something exciting and magical and almost transgressive of, of, having, of bringing, retrieving something from a you know, locked box or cabinet, and whether it was her tea or her whiskey. And, um, there are secret things in the stories. I'm trying to think if there are moments like that. Well, I think that she's very, she's very, she was very concerned. I mean, there is this Kafka streak of this borough yeah. idea, yeah. and everything yeah, being orderly, and everything being orderly yeah. in the borough. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and she liked living in small places and to be tucked up. And when we went to the Metropolitan Museum, she wanted to look at all the figures who were swaddled. Right. So we, were, we sort of went on a quest through the museum looking for Jesus swaddled <laughs> yeah. as a baby, for mummies swaddled. <laughs> and if you look in her work, and, and this idea of unwrapping and wrapping, mm. and, and that does connect to secrecy. And the cabbages be, also. Yeah, very, yeah, yeah. The leaves around it. It would be a good way of looking at reading the stories, actually, to yeah. look for imagery of, of, of concealment and, and, and safety, safety and concealment, mm, safety yeah. in being wrapped. But it's an uneasy relationship because sometimes being buried means being destroyed or being suffocated, especially by parents, mm. you know, mothers and fathers who are sort of 
clothing their children too assiduously and, and destroying their agency. That does come out. Yes, and yeah. wildness, of course. Mm -hmm. her, her love of the feral. But it's the yeah. feral animal that's also a burrower. It burrow, its own burrower. burrower and, yeah. Uh, yeah. and creating a space that belongs to, the, to herself or itself. And, but the, uh, the, sort of the other very kind of the trick, the kind of imagery that runs through it is the imagery of devouring, which is also feral. Yeah. I mean, but it's Eucharistic. There's a lot of eating yeah, and, yeah. and consuming yeah. And, yeah. and food. The imagery of food is very, yeah. very powerful yeah. um, in, in rather gorgeous ways, actually. Yeah. Not, I mean, not, not foody ways, but... <laughs> but um, well, she does ceremonial the vintage when it comes to yeah. wine. Yeah. 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 But I just wanted to add one oh, thing, sorry, to your lovely yeah. alphabet. And that is that she painted with both hands. Mm -hmm. And that, because so writing with both hands is not as unusual. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, but to painting, see her yeah. painting was extraordinary. And one does wonder. Well, you said it at the same time as yes, well. Yes, at the same time. That. Yes, at the same time, yeah. She would, she had bad brushes in both hands, and she'd paint with both hands. Which actually, if you think about it, is very, it's rather odd that people don't do it more. <laughs> because after all, you play a piano with both hands, you play a violin with both hands. But that, so suggests, so yes. that suggests something more intuitive. You're doing it with almost without looking at what you're doing, as so it was coming. Well, you know, she was How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Emperor. So she, she mixed, it was for, a form of cooking, yeah. because she would mix the egg yolks yeah. and, and the pigment. So it was, it was done in the kitchen in New York, when she was in New York. I don't know in Mexico whether she had a separate studio. On the roof. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But the other thing that you mentioned about dream is that she did actually have quite a theory of that because she was, in, in this sense, rather Jungian. Mm. You know, she believed that you, you, you need to um, enter that space that's between, which is when you get this rapid eye movements and things, mm. it's between deep sleep and mm. being awake. Mm. And um, it's where, you know, she, she called it hypnagogic. Yeah. How, how would one enter into that space? Well, you, you, need, you need not to put the alarm clock on, and you need to wake up and remain in that penumbra without rushing out of bed. Oh, you, yeah. stay in that dream, you stay in that suspended moment. Mm. Um, and it is a place where you often have those dreams that you can't quite realize until you wake up completely, that they're not real. I mean, they don't have the same quality as the dreams that you have when you're completely asleep, mm. because those you sort of know they're dreams. But this, these ones are the ones where you are really confused, and you yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you, and you can half control them sometimes, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
I'm just thinking of the yeah. last one I had like that that would really freak me out. But anyway. That's right. They're sometimes quite long. Yeah, yes. yeah. Because they. And she definitely cultivated that. I mean, she she had this little narrow bed and she had naps and things, <laughs> and she definitely worked on worked on that mm. sort of form of consciousness very mm. very deliberately. Mm. And of course, she meditated mm. because she went to the Tibetans. Mm. You're right that she was skeptical and she wasn't sort of into the occult in a. I mean, you can see that in the writing too. Mm. She's not. She's uses a lot of occult imagery. Mm. And it's very amusing about it. But it's, you know, Carlos Fuentes, mm. you probably know, did you know? Mm. Yes. Yeah. Carlos Fuentes said it was ironic sorcery. I think that's a, <laughs> I think that's a very, that's very good a, phrase. Yeah. No, it is. It's just a little bit of mm. distance, but yet yeah, also is, um, mm. in a nice way, the kind of being into it as well, being into the, you know, these things that we don't understand. Um, no, it's so interesting for me to hear what she was like in New York. Because <laughs> 80, you know, 90% of what you described sounds, sounds familiar, but there's a whole meditating, and I don't think she did that anymore. Well, she was living a very solitary life in New York. I mean, and, and you know, she gave me a lot of time. When I look back on it, I wonder, you know, did she really want to spend so much time with me? But, but I fell completely in love with her. You know, it was, I mean, it really was, it was a great sadness to me when she left to Mexico, and somehow I wasn't going to see her again. And so I, you know, I, I just she, she had immense, the most amazing charm. I want mm. to tell one story, Please kind do. of well, perhaps two stories. One, it picks up on your grey clothes. Um, <laughs> she, she said, "I've got Pablo is coming, my son, her son, um, from Chicago, where he was quite a high up doctor." And she said, "I have to be respectable." This was the, the grey is all part of her attempt to be respectable. <laughs> she said, "I have to be respectable for Pablo. I do not want to shock Pablo." What, what I do not want been wearing. Well, no, no, she, she was perfectly respectable. I mean, but, but she said, we have to go and buy me a dress. So we went to a, a shop, which was a sort of dime store, and we went into a basement, and there were racks of terrible clothes. Anyway, she, she, she found some dresses and went off into the changing room and came out and one at a time. And then she said, well, which one do you like best? And I said, well, Leonora, I think they're all all right within the genre, but they're all much much too big for you. <laughs> and she said, oh, but you see, I must be, I must be entirely covered. <laughs> because otherwise Pablo will be shocked. <laughs> anyway, the other, on the other, sort of other end of the, sort of the spectrum, the other end of the spectrum of her is that we often talked a lot, gossiped a lot about sex and love and men. She said, oh, it's a curse to be heterosexual. <laughs> and, <laughs> which I agreed with. You could far prefer being with women, but you know the trouble mm -hmm. is the drive. <laughs> and then, anyway, I said, well, sort of, what, then another artist, Stella Sneed, who was a, a surrealist uh, a photographer, did collages, was living in New York, had been at the art school with Leonora, a little bit older, died before her. Stella came to dinner one night in this very you know, informal kitchen, Leonora's. And they were talking about their last love affairs. Stella's had been on the boat coming to New York a long time before. And uh, Leonora looked up to the ceiling and she said, you know, I, I gave up sex when I lost my last tooth. <laughs> so she, I mean, she really was extremely entertaining. <laughs> Um, we do have, I mean, I don't know if there are questions in the audience and whether we want to start opening up for questions. I mean, I wanted 
to sort of ask you too why, I mean, we've talked about how wonderful she was as a person, but I wanted to connect up the art and life a little bit and talk yes. about, you know, why, why are we interested in her again now? What, what do you think? What is this thing that mm. persists about her, 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 her pictures, but also her writing? And, you know, you know why? why? <laughs> What's going on now? Well, why is she so interesting to both of you? But just well mentioning her, <laughs> mentioning her as a female human animal, mm. and the idea of well, that essay is very much a statement of breaking free from patriarchal structures or systems, but also of identity being very fluid. And one is well, female human animal, not necessarily in that order, but one exists and inhabits the world in that way. And she was was well, a. Well, I come if I said it downstairs, but I mean, there was such a continuum between her voice, her spoke. There was just such a fierce authenticity, and the person she was in front of you was exactly it carried. Into, there was no pretension. There was no artifice. There's most artists and writers I've met. There's there's some mask or there's mm. some pretension, but with her, it was she defies categorization. Mm. I mean, you've written you've written about her so wonderfully and more mm. scholarly <laughs> and more scholarly. No, no, but well, I mean, I think that it, it, there's a, simply a remarkable phenomenon of someone who is, you know, an artist and a writer of equal strength. Mm, mm. And one of the things that was sort of disappointing in the past, and you've remedied, is that somehow she wasn't getting acknowledgement for her writing. Mm. The people saw it as sort of secondary, but it sort of isn't, and there is a constant fusion, mm. um, overlap of, of imagery um, between them, and method, I think, too, the, the kind of approach. And... She, but uh, I mean, it, well, we mustn't sort of forget that it was the story that carried her to prominence. I mean, it was because of the, the joining the Surrealist movement in the 30s, the curious background, mm. very unusual background actually for an artist. Mm. Um, she was, you know, the daughter of a sort of big industrialist. She makes quite a lot of it in Down Below, her, the account of when she yeah. had this sort of crisis of her. It's a nervous crisis uh, when Max Ernst had been arrested for the second time and taken to, because he was first arrested as a German, then went against France. I mean, as a German national, he was arrested by the French at the beginning of the war. Then a lot of petitions were brought to bear and he was released. And then the Germans um, overran France and he was arrested as, an, as, a, as a degenerate German by mm -hmm. the Germans. And again, and so, and she was pretty much 19, I think. Mm. left alone in this extremely critical situation with all her friends being deported and everybody she knew in what various forms of flight. And, and she had a, a breakdown down below. And so she, that gave her a status as one of the great witnesses to mental distress. It's a very mm. remarkable text. Um, and which in your review books are we publishing yeah, at the end yes, of the month? Down yeah. below, um, which had a very strange publishing history, which I won't go into, but it... It, it survived as a document, and it's a very remarkable document. It's on the same, of the same kind of caliber as Judge Schreber's Memoirs of My Nervous Illness, because it, it, it operates on two forms of consciousness. She remembers extremely well how mad she was, mm. as if she hadn't been mad at all. <laughs> and so she kind of chronicles it perfectly mm. with great lucidity. So it exists in these two planes. Mm. And that gave her, you know, she became a great um, figure within surrealism. I mean, André Breton really... You know, rated her, and she had many friends because they all fled, as you you know mm. knew, your family knew too, um, to Mexico, which gave them amnesty, gave amnesty to people yeah. who had been um, 
persecuted by the Germans in, in, in Europe. Sort of seems extraordinary at the moment we're at in the world exactly, now. Exactly, yeah. yeah. The socialist government just said, you're welcome here. So there was an enormous colony as a result of some very yeah. remarkable people. Yeah. They were dirt poor. They, you know, there was no sort of no support. So, but they did some very interesting work as a result, actually. Benjamin Perret did some excellent work in Mexico yeah. um, when he was in flight there. So, so she was then part of that community. Um, and then she was lost, I think, to view in a way from the perspective, the Eurocentric perspective, mm. not in Mexico. Mm. In Mexico, she became a great figure there. Mm. It was public art and things, didn't mm. it? Yes, yes. you probably want to say about her, her work as a... Well, we always felt that it was so often, and when I worked, I co-curated the show at Tate Liverpool, I'd say 60% of the time people think I was referring to Dora Carrington. And I was so surprised <laughs> by yeah. of how here in her country... Um, and in Mexico, she was very much a public figure. And she hated being approached, but she would be. And even, um, well, I mentioned it briefly in my A to Z, but across the street, the huge pile of rubble, the collapsed building that over the years was being colonized and colonized and growing community. And she felt very threatened by it, but she also had a fascination. I realized it was also ruins and somehow the idea of a ruin right in front of her house. And whenever Cheeky asked me, I lived in Berlin for six years, and whenever Cheeky would ask me, where are you living? I'd say, Berlin, and he'd say, it's still in ruins. Mm. Sixty years later, he still mm. felt it was this battered, demoralized city. Mm. And Leonora would always say, Why, how can you live in Germany? And, and towards the end of her life, when she was, began to lose her hearing, uh, they sent, her doctor wanted to send her to a, an institute, a German institute, and she didn't go. She said she, she scares me full of Germans. Right. And well, it was just it wasn't. But and um, yeah. I, I think the other thing that, that's sort of interesting. I mean, when you mention about the, the situation in Mexico City, mm. I was reminded, of course, that she was very political. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Must wanted to. But she was denounced. Us. You know, 1960. Yeah, yes. yes. She was denounced by Octavio Paz's ex-wife Elena Garro. Who cool. drew up a list of intellectuals, she right. considered left wing, mm. who had yes. incited the students. Yes. Yes. Right. So there's so, a yeah. kind of. Um, but she fled, she left after she that. Went to right. yeah. Well, when they were shot, how many were shot? An awful lot of hundreds. Were hundreds, shot, yes. yeah. She left Mexico City. That was the first time she came to live in New York. But yeah. actually, she then went back to Mexico, yeah. Mexico and, then, and then left again mm. when, when I met her that time. So, um, so they. So, um, but, but it's interesting that this was. This is a kind of loyalty to the to the Bretonian surrealism in its pure form, mm. where they saw it as a political movement against constraint and oppression, against conventional... Oh, so it's a reconnection yes, back to yes, the yes. beginning. I hadn't thought of it like that. Yes, That's interesting. Yes. So, so that actually for... And I think also um, there's a political element in her use of Mexican folklore and Mexican belief systems. Mm. So um, you know, she had this very strong commitment to the idea of the animal familiar. Mm. And, and that she and brought it into some of her paintings very, mm. very, mm. very frequently. Mm. Yes, and, and that, that in a way was asserting the crushed you know, Indian um, communities, mm. the pueblos in, mm. Within, mm. within Mexico. Now that sounds less kind of you know, surprising to us, but actually the sort of hierarchical um, vision of societies mm. in mm. Latin America yeah, um, and about mural, very, yeah, magic yes. world of the Mayas. So it's, it's a retrieval, mm. a, a passionate retrieval of something that had been silenced and muted. Mm. And I think the idea of engaging through uh, this, you know, this kind of dreamlike states, 
is to is, is also for her was a way of pronouncing, you know, asserting the connection of all human beings within, you know, getting rid of the colonial mentality that yeah. our rational, you know, evolved whatever civilization should, you know, domesticate and change this backward sort of illiterate. That, that all that she was really trying yeah. to sweep that away, and I think it mm. shows in the stories. Too. Yeah, sort of hippie and political. That one. Yes, yes, hippie. Alice, you're sort of a younger generation, and you've written about um, Leonora for the LRB. And what what was it that draws you, still draws you to her, or why why you think it's interesting to her? I think it's just remarkable that that so few people have heard of her. I mean, it's mm. completely mind-boggling. Someone who was so amazing as an artist and as a writer. If, if she had been a man, everyone would know who she was, I'm sure of it. And I can't help feeling that her rejection of a certain sort of Britishness has contributed to that and that we're all very late to the party. Yeah. And yet she had postcards of the royals on yeah. her kitchen cabinet. Yeah, did she? Yeah. And that's what's so appealing about the story. Yeah. But she liked the Queen Mother. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she said they're she said they're harmless but expensive. <laughs> 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 but, but you know they did that calculation every year which says it only costs us two pounds. That's well, just with still quite expensive. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, Queen Mother was almost a sort of bird, wasn't she? She always wore those hats with sort of feathers. <laughs> well I think she would have liked the dressing up. Yes. <laughs> um, I've really run over because I'm terrified. I just wanted I love to one final anecdote that, that just her final words that uh, her son told me, Gabby, which was she was staring very fixedly at a wall, mm. a blank wall, and Gabby said, what are you looking at, mother? And he, she said, birds. She said, he said, where? He said, hundreds of birds, blackbirds on the wall, magnificent blackbirds. Those are her last words. Mm. Wow. So the landscape of her child, the bird from... Mm. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Um, do we have any questions? Probably got about five, ten minutes, if anyone's got any. I just wondered if... Um, you can maybe think about her in the context of... I saw Colquhoun's writing because it's, she's another female surrealist, English surrealist. I didn't catch I saw Colquhoun. I just wondered if, because yeah. you're talking about people who are not necessarily that well yes. known, yeah. and just there's so many correlations between their writing and their painting and their methods of making, and I just wondered if there was anything. Well, I've only read, is it The Goose of Hermogenes? Yes. That's the only one I've read. And I didn't think it was as, I didn't think it had the coruscating quality of mischief. I thought it was much more straightforward surrealism in the sense of, um, I mean, I may be quite wrong, but you know, sometimes the surrealist imagination can be rather solemn about its subject. And I felt that, she, that I'm afraid I didn't. But, you know, because one of the books we haven't mentioned, because it's not, mm. is The Hearing Trumpet, which is Leonora's full-length novel, right. um, which incidentally, of course, is about Lapland. You were talking the last about the last sentence. It's the last yeah. sentence, yes. And, um, and, and that is a real masterpiece, you know. Right. I mean, really kind of a, a fully achieved, extraordinary combination of massive research into occult theories. But at the same time, this levity. And when she was quite a young woman, this writing about old age, the crone, in this utterly energetic and very, very subversive way. So, and I felt, I'm afraid that it's, it's quite a long time since I read The Ethel Cocoon, but though I sort of admired it, I, it, didn't, it didn't give me quite the same warmth sort of feeling as... No, as you know, it's so especially as, yeah. as, 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 as Carrington. I, I have um, a perspective on this that I'd like to know. I think that you will share it with me. Um, which is her relationship 
to animals and humans, I feel that she, because, maybe because she had to break away from her family and then she fell into the war and she'd had all these problems with human organization, that she really preferred the animal world and that, she, that this was seen through the painting and through the writing and that if I were picking A, I would say A for absurd, that she felt that humans um, had a certain, that everything was absurd, that nothing mattered, um, and that you would be better off if we could have somehow gone into the animal world and only communicated with them. Um, I'm speaking from a point of view of the fact that when I was, as I told you, when I was 23, I knew her in Mexico City for a few years. She, um, she once said to me, she said, um, horses are so generous, they lend us their intelligence. Mm. <laughs> yeah. she, she felt that also about dogs. And okay. hyenas. <laughs> there was a tree she'd planted 50 years. Um, Marina, could you tell us a little bit more about Down Below? I'm not even sure when she wrote it. I don't know very much about it. Um, but it sounds like a significant work from her life, and I'm really looking forward to reading it. When did she write it, and when did it get published? She, it was published in 45 or 6. She wrote it soon after. In, she, she first dictated it to the doctor, Pierre Mabie, who was a, one of the surrealists, uh, in the circle of the surrealists who fled to Mexico from France. And then um, it was written down by his wife in French. And then it was, it was published in French, I think immediately after the war. And then it was translated back with her corrections. Yeah, it's a very, high, in that sense, highly technical. It has very interesting illustrations, including a marvelous portrait of one of the psych psychiatrists, doctors. By her. By her, yeah, absolutely, yes. And a map of the psychiatrist of the, mm. of the hospital where she, where she was in, um, you know, kept. And she was given an early form of electroconvulsive therapy, um, which was extremely harsh. And she also had numerous characters, the nurses, the doctors. There's also a lot of family trouble because the family went, sent out, set out to fetch her back after war broke out to try and get her back. And they sent the nanny. This is a sort of very, yeah, they sent her nanny, who had actually been her, her sort of, you know, companion all her life because she yeah. hadn't left the household. Yeah. I mean, even though she'd grown up and left home. And so, as far as you're aware, is it factually correct? It's, uh, how, yeah, I mean, it reads as if it's a chronicle, yes. It, but it's shot through with her, this sort of very lively internal life that she has in everything she does. So, you know, the... the the wall between yeah. what's experienced in the world and what's experienced in her mind is not a very, this is not a defining wall in, in, in Leonora's way Probably difficult being. to talk about factual yes, in that, yeah, in that yeah, context, yeah. probably. Yeah. I was just thinking about her life in New York. I read Joanna Moorhead's book and it doesn't say very much about it. I'm thinking how great it would be if she'd met Louise Bourgeois. Did, she didn't, did she? Did she, uh, know, did she <laughs> mix with other artists there? They would have been such an interesting meeting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember her mentioning Louise. Louise Bourgeois wasn't, you know, she was not very well known then. But in the mid-80s, that she emerges after that. She was the person who was known and who she might have known, Leonora, because their, their actual interests did converge, 
is the husband of um, Louise Bourgeois, who was into is an ethnographer. You know, he was an anthropological art, art historian. I mean, she didn't like socializing. I don't mm. know if she did in Mexico. No, not at all. She didn't go to out to things. She she stayed in her burrow, where she dreamed and painted and dreamed and painted. And then mm. there were quite a lot of people like me who would find her, mm. and she was always very welcoming, and um, would talk to us. She she was very, as you said, you know, she had no. She was very unvain, quite extraordinarily unvain. Mm. The Louise Bourgeois comparison interesting for you, Chloe and. Alice, does that say anything? Definitely. And no, I would love to know, but she never mentioned her so. But the she had been very close, of course, to the art Mexican artists. Yeah. I mean, the Cachi Horna, yeah. Remedios yeah. Varo. Remedios was a great passion of hers. She yeah. really loved Remedios. <laughs> and she... and she it was the friendship she considered. Mm, the central yeah. friendship of her life. Yeah. And she yeah. was convinced <laughs> that Remedios had been murdered. We're not just celebrating the 100th you know, anniversary of Leonora Carrington's birth, but we're also celebrating the 25th anniversary since Angela Carter's death. Mm. And it, it doesn't surprise me that, that Angela Carter was very, very interested in Leonora Carrington's work, that, that they seem like soulmates to me. And these anniversaries are obviously very helpful in, in bringing these messages to the fore, but I, I feel like maybe there's something more that we've got to say about the feminist cause at this moment in time. And Marina and Chloe, I just wonder if you can maybe impart some of your wisdom from the 1980s and whether you think that there might be well, kind of some sort of <laughs> resurgence today. I, I was very young when, when those books were coming out. I was, I was an infant. And I, I, I just wonder if maybe there's something that's, that's going on at this very moment in time that is kind of of interest to us. Yeah, I always think about this in relation to waves. Like, why do we always have to dip? <laughs> we hang back up. Why can't we just, you know? Um, is there anything one can say to us? <laughs> I, feel I've done, I feel I've done an awful lot. Sorry, that's why I went. No, no, but you're much better answering these questions than I am. Um, so, because I, I grew up in Mexico City, and there wasn't, and I only noticed it when I went to university in the United States, how self-possessed and confident and assertive my contemporaries were, the women. And I, well, probably to this day, but I... I just wasn't as practiced or as comfortable in asserting myself or my thoughts or ideas. And so to embark on this friendship, family friendship with Leonora, because one-on-one, -on -one, maybe once or twice I saw her, but, and at the time I smoked and she was always very annoyed when I'd, the times I'd quit and we had, we bonded over well, that, <laughs> love of animals. Yes, but um, she was so formidable and she, she definitely one, immediately said she preferred the company of women. Again, not sexually, but in every other way. She very much, in a room, paid much more attention to the women and just felt much more comfortable. I haven't, I still processing what the imprint is left in a more uh, tangible, conscious way. But of course, Angela Carter. You could, yeah, I mean, she, she's, it's quite uncanny, actually. Because I don't think that Angela Carter could have read a lot of her work. Um, so she anthologized the debutante. And she translated it as well, yeah. Uh, that's her own translation uh, in Wayward Girls and whatever oh, that's, that's oh, called. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. So, but I don't, and she probably knew the hearing trumpet. But it is, it is uncanny, actually, because even this sort of shape over the arc of their lives is similar, because it begins with these erotic fables. 
And then she writes this, you know, very exuberant study in old crones, um, which is very similar to how Wise Children has Dora and Nora Chance as these sort of old hoofers who've been through so much, and you know, it's full of carnivalesque life, and that's really quite similar in terms of the sensibility. So, yes, it's... But I suppose one of the things that one might say, and I agree with you that it's a moment of, you know, terrible disarray in so, on so many, so many fronts of ideas. And, of course, terribly, desperately disappointing that we have so many female leaders, most of whom are sort of not interested in, you know, the rights of, not even women, but, I mean, the, you know, I, I came across a... I mean, anyone, really. I mean, I came across a quotation which, in an article about refugees, that Theresa May had given an interview in the Daily Telegraph when she was Home Secretary, saying, we are going to create a truly hostile environment for people coming, seeking refuge. That's appalling. Yeah, I mean, I have to get the actual date of this interview in the Telegraph. But I sort of remember that from when she was Home Secretary. I remember her saying, there will be gunboats in the channel if we, if we try to come on our shores. And, and this, you know, so this is, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I mean, in some ways, actually, Leonora never, doesn't have any female characters who are like that. She has Frau Assegurado in, in the, um, in Down Below, who's a kind of cruel, cruel, sadistic nurse. But not, I mean, on the whole, she's interested in opening up possibilities, a sort of surrealist desire to break down what exists and, you know, kind of uh, seed the convention so they grow in a different shape and become completely effloresce into the world and unsettle things. And that hope is really, I mean, I think Leonore, um, Angela also had that. And, you know, we don't know what Angela Carter would have said about the current situation. It's a shame. It would be great to know. I think that's the right depressing note to end on. Um, Thank you all so much. I just want to say, this is the last picture one month before she died. That my parents took of her with Yeti, oh, with yeah, a diminutive, yeah. abominable snowman. Mm. But the dent, her dentist gave it, and it provided a lot of happiness. Just mm. end on a happier note. Yeah. <laughs> Yeti provided a lot of happiness in the last three years of her life. But she's smoking. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I want to thank our panel so much for, for joining us today thank and all you for coming. And please stay around, have a glass of wine, yes. buy the book. That might help feminism yes. a little tiny. Yes. <laughs> um, thanks very much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.